Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. We are now uh, just just shy of a week past Thanksgiving here in the states, and uh, you know I, I'm very confused with how this is all working nowadays because Black Friday uh, used to be the day after Thanksgiving, and that was when you got some of the best deals of the year. Now Black Friday actually started November first, uh, at least in the music industry, and for some companies, I don't really pay that much attention to too many things outside of the industry because as it you know I'm getting over 100 emails a day just on those deals I don't really have time to look at too many other things but here's here's what I find interesting so Black Friday actually started 3 weeks ago and you had those sales starting uh announcing themselves as early Black Friday sales. Then Black Friday happens, but that actually starts happening like 12 hours before it's actually Friday. Uh, and then Black Friday sales get extended through the weekend into Monday, uh, which became known as Cyber Monday, which was the sort of internet counterpart to Black Friday sales. Then uh, Cyber Monday now became extended Cyber Monday, uh, which goes into Tuesday and Wednesday, which now, as I've seen today for the first time, uh, has turned into Cyber Week. So really, it, it just starts on the first of the month and it keeps rolling and they keep changing the name, but it's really the same sales. Even some of the deals that I found in the music industry were exactly the same for Cyber Monday as they were for Black Friday as they were on November 1st. So I don't even know what the shopping strategies are these days. I, I just say if you see a good deal and, you know, uh, grab it because it could change, but it's probably not going to. You're probably just going to see that same price in extended uh, or, you know, uh, Cyber Monday to Cyber Week or extended Black Friday or whatever they're going to call it. It's it's just a complete mess now. Um, but anyway, I hope you guys all got some great deals or are continuing to get great deals as we're now in the middle of Cyber Week or extended Black Monday, Cyber Friday, whatever. Uh, it's just absolutely crazy. So that's my two cents on Thanksgiving. I hope you guys uh, all had a wonderful holiday. Uh, I spent the day in the studio working on a project uh, that I'm hoping will will be finished and released here pretty soon uh, for a private deal. And then uh, I, I just went and uh, got some fresh air and took a long walk down the strip really late that night. Uh, air is, is pretty crisp, so it was a chilly walk, but uh, really nice to get out of the chair after sitting in it for like 18 hours straight. So... Uh, uh, today's guest is a really good friend of mine, Jeff Marriott. He's a fantastic author. He's done over 70 books. I've worked on a couple books with him on audiobook projects with uh, our reader, Tamara McDaniel, who's just a, a fantastic voice actress. She was actually the one that introduced me to him. And uh, and then he and I met, I think, for the first time in person uh, at Phoenix Comic Con the first year that I went. Uh, and then we connected the second year I went when I was one of the speakers uh, in, a, in a panel that turned out to just be a panel of me talking for an hour about sound and audio in uh, the film business. 
that was actually a lot of fun. Uh, so I uh, did a couple audiobooks with Jeff. Uh, Cold Black Hearts was the first one, uh, which uh, is a, just a fantastic, intense journey. And then The Devil's Bait, which is another fantastic, intense journey. But this one goes from a small, desolate town to around the world. So it's it's really good to see the span of his work as a writer. It's definitely, you know, one book is very different from another, but they're they're all highly, highly enjoyable. And, and he's one of those people that makes me want to find time to sit down and read when I don't make the time to do it. And, and I'm saying that perfectly, taking responsibility for it. I choose to make other things a priority. And now those priorities are always creating new projects, marketing, networking, finding new work to do uh, between my own projects, uh, because some pay and some don't. So you have to find more of the ones that pay so you can do more of the ones that don't pay. It's a really weird, vicious cycle here. Uh, but he is really one of those, like his writing is that good. And it, it makes me want to carve out time to get one of his books and curl up on the couch. But I've had the pleasure of reading a couple and, um, every one of them has just been top notch. So he's one of those people that I would highly, highly recommend that you check out. Um, and I'll have some links in the show notes. Um, the books that we worked on Cold black hearts and the devil's bait are available on Amazon audible, uh, acx.com. I think they're on iTunes now. Uh, so th- those can be listened to, uh, on any of those places you can download them to, you know, variety of different devices or just listen on your computer. Um, if you're an audiobook lover, grab them, enjoy them because they're fantastic books. So without uh, me babbling on any longer, let's go ahead and get Jeff on the show. All right, let's go ahead and welcome Jeff to the show. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. It's a really beautiful day here in Las Vegas. Not a dot of blue in the sky, which is really rare Perfect. for us, so it's it's exciting to me. Yes. You guys get pretty much the same weather we do. You're usually a couple of degrees hotter and a little less wind, but it's very similar. Yep. Yeah, we had the, the cloudy skies a couple of days ago. It's it's all clear blue today. So that's probably coming your way in a couple of days. Well, I definitely uh, will not be looking forward to that. I'm just going to enjoy the clouds while I have them. There you go. So that's right. So you're down in Phoenix now. And the last time you, you and I saw each other was when you were up here doing a promotional signing at Barnes & Noble. Uh, I think that was when uh, Empty Rooms had come out, wasn't it? I believe so, yeah. I loved that book. And, you Thank know, you. I... I what I loved about it was that it was a little bit different of, of a story from the kind of stuff that I've read from you being more of a detective novel, but also it, ha- it just happened to take place in Detroit where I'm from. Um, but as I recall that one, it was uh, meant to be a series. Are you working on more on that one? Um, I wish that I was, but the sales on that one did not, um, seem to merit continuing the series. Oh. I, I really like the characters. Um, I like the setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not from Detroit, but I'm from the Chicago area, and so I'm a you know, Midwestern native. And mm-hmm. um, I did spend a lot of time in Detroit doing research, and I like the city and, and Michigan in general. But um, I could not make it interesting for a publisher. So yeah, that's a real shame. And, and the thing is, is that that sales and publishing interest does not necessarily constitute the 
level of enjoyment of any project, whether you're a musician or an author or a painter. It's all subjective, but really, you know, that does not mean it wasn't a great book. I loved it. I, it was one of those books that I didn't want to put down. I would look ahead and see how many pages is the next chapter and, and then justify, okay, I'll stay up another 15 minutes because I can get through X amount of pages. And then I'd get to the end of that and then justify going another chapter because I just didn't want to stop reading. That's my goal when I write, um, to, to keep you, keep the reader interested, keep the reader moving along through it. And, um, physically try to structure the book such that you can look ahead and go, oh yeah, that's, this chapter is very long, I can finish this one. Oh well, the, the next one's pretty short, I can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, that, that means that what I was trying to do worked. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I found that with all of your books, and of course uh, the first two that I had read of yours, uh, we were working on the audiobook version. Yes. Uh, Tamara McDaniel did, did uh, both uh, Cold Black Hearts was the first one, and then the, the Devil's Bait was the second one. She's awesome. She is. And I remember when when she first told me about you uh, and that we were going to do a book of yours, and, and she said, you know, it's this kind of horror novel. You'll love it because I'm a big horror fan. When when we were doing Cold Black Hearts, I just I fell in love with the character immediately. I had these really vivid visuals in my head of the area that she was going to because you described it so well. I mean, you you gave me enough to let my own mind create it, but you gave me the place setting to create a proper environment for it. Is that something that you really focus on doing, or is it something that just kind of comes out naturally? No, it's definitely intentional. Um, When I'm writing, I like to put real places into the work. Even if it's a fictitious town, I like to, to know where it's set um, in the country or around the world. And I like to go to the places that I'm writing about. Um, you, know, you have Google Maps and, and lots of online references and magazines and whatever, but using those for research doesn't tell you. Well, if you're standing on this spot here, what can you hear? What can you smell? What can you see from here? Mm-hmm. So I try to to physically get to the places that I'm writing about um, and take a lot of notes, take a lot of pictures, um, and then refer to those when I'm writing so that I know. Yeah, I like that. I guess so that I'm grounded myself and then I know that I'm describing the the setting and I think setting is is really important to to me for the enjoyment of a story and I I try to convey that to the reader. I, I agree. I think it uh and especially in that book in particular, really, really the, the locations were a big part of that story because she had to be isolated to an extent. She had to have access to certain things, but not the uh, quick, easy ability that we have to, you know, right. react with a cell phone and things these days. Uh I, I think too, connecting with the physical energy of a location. Like when I'm doing film scoring, if I can go to the set and visit it, I love to do that because I oh, want sure. I want that like you said the smell of it, I want the feel of it. I want to know what character that plays as well. So I think that's that's one of my favorite things about your work is the way that you describe the environment so that you can really feel like you're a part of it. Well, I spent a lot of time out in that 
kind of New Mexico wilderness area down on the boot hill. Mm-hmm. There's there's not much there, which is what I was looking for, and I found it. Yeah, it, it definitely came out as, as desolate and isolated for sure. Yeah. The second one that we worked on uh, was uh, The Devil's Bait. And this was a, a whole completely different story. This one was kind of a world traveling story. Have you been overseas to some of these places as well? Yes. Um, my father worked for the Department of Defense as a civilian, so um, he had spent time in France during World War II. And when I was six years old, he had the opportunity to move back there. So we we lived in France for five years. Um, then we moved to Virginia, then we moved to Germany, then I came to California for college and have stayed in the West ever since. But um, during my my younger days, I spent a lot of time in Europe and we went to all the countries of Western Europe and I've been back several times. Um, I love Paris and that's why I saw those scenes in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, I think the only place I haven't spent a lot of time that was in that book was Iowa. I, I believe there was a section that was Iowa. I think uh, so, yeah. Where yeah, the sister lived, I think so. I think she was in Iowa. I've been through Iowa, but I haven't spent a lot of time there. Well, plus it wasn't a key scene. It wasn't something that you really, you know, you weren't following the main character so much at that point that you kind of really needed to get into that so much. Yeah. No, that was a good. I, and I really liked working on both of those books. They were great stories to follow. Um, it, it really does get a bit tiring working uh, as a director and then the editor of the audiobook because it's hours and hours and hours of pouring through the story. Oh, sure. And yeah. uh, but you, your stories were a lot of fun because they moved. You know, they they weren't stagnant. They wasn't. I went to open a door handle and I had a memory that's going to take twenty pages to describe. I mean, your books really, they don't lack for description or detail, but they also don't stay in one place a lot. They really, the story seems to always move forward, and I really like that style. Well, you and Tammy did such a great job on those, and I, you know, I'm just thrilled with the way they came out. Thank you, thank you. They and were... more people should listen to them. They should yes. rush out to their to Audible right now. And <laughs> yeah, and, and of course, you can get the audiobooks on Amazon and uh, ACX as well, and, and uh, iTunes now carries them. Uh, which is which is great because it's any you know the audio format has become such a huge thing because people don't have they don't carve out as much time to just sit and read a book as they used to it's it's not something I have the time to do anymore um, or more fairly don't make the time to do anymore um, but uh, do you feel like I do where it's still great to just sit there with a physical book in your hand and the Kindle just doesn't really feel the same? Yeah, I'm I'm an old fashioned print guy. I very rarely listen to audiobooks. I never read books online if I can help it or on a device. Mm-hmm. Um, but, which you could tell by looking at my house because there's <laughs> books everywhere. But uh, <laughs> but besides that, I like the the tactile sensation of holding it and turning the pages and mm-hmm. and the the page kind of is its own element. So. So there's an emotional impact to to a page, and then the turn of a page, and then mm-hmm. what comes on the next page. And the in the sense of accomplishment when you finish, you know, if it's a particularly large book, uh, yeah. when you get through those last pages and all the weight is in your left hand, you're like, wow, I actually sat and read this entire thing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I don't. I definitely don't get that sense if I read something on like a Kindle or 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 uh, you know the the computer. It's just and in the physical page turn and the smell of that. It just there's just so much to it that you really can't recapture digitally. But uh, the environmental side of it of, of me goes, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. And the the practical side, and that you can carry a, a few hundred books on your Kindle instead mm. of having. You know, that's a full bookcase. Right, and right. Not everybody has room for a full bookcase or wants to spend the money on owning all those books. True, true. And there's there's that thing about the fact that we live in this instant gratification world that instead of going out and looking at shelves in a bookstore and picking out what you want, you just go online, you download it, you have it, you can start reading it. Although to me, that's, that's balanced against the, the wonder of discovery mm-hmm. in a bookstore when you just peruse the shelves and you see a title that looks interesting and you go, oh, what's that about? And you pull it out and you look at it. Yeah. And that's not as easy to do in an online situation. It can happen. And- that's absolutely true. I found a brand new author, well, not brand new authors, but authors that were new to me simply by walking down and looking at the shelves in the section of a bookstore and going, well, this cover looks interesting. What's this about? Or that title sounds intriguing. I wonder what that story is, you know? Exactly. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm I'm kind of curious because your books are so detailed and so intense. Do you tend to work off of an outline or or do you just kind of just you have your idea and you go with it? I usually use an outline. I don't always um I'm trying to think in the case of um the devil's bait, I don't think I had much of an outline. But in the case of Cold Black Hearts, I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it varies project by project. But I do a lot of what's called tie-in books or licensed fiction, mm-hmm. where I'm writing in an existing fictional universe, whether it's CI, CI, CSI or NCIS or Star Trek or Narcos or whatever. Um, and with those projects, an outline is a requirement. Here's the process. They sell the rights to a publishing company. The publishing company hires a writer, um, and then the writer provides an outline, and the, the license holder approves the outline or makes changes to the outline or says, absolutely not, that you know, come up with something else. Mm-hmm. But in any case, you have to have an outline. And then once you have the outline, because it's been approved, you have to cue fairly close to what you've written. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they approve the final manuscript as well. So um, I'm used to working with an outline, and I'm used to kind of plotting out in advance. So the vast majority of my books are have been outlined. Do you find when you're when you're writing under that kind of contract that it is a little bit limiting because if you come up with an idea that you like better, you really can't deviate and delve into that idea too much. You're you're kind of stuck with the the block you've created. There is that. I especially when I'm working on my own stuff. If I outline it, of course I can always make whatever changes to what I want. I kind of view it as a roadmap mm-hmm. where I'm on a trip. I know that I'm starting in Phoenix and I'm ending up in New Hampshire and along the way there are these points that I want to stop at but if I'm driving through Kansas and there's a sign that says the world's biggest ball of string is 10 miles that way I'm going to go see the world's biggest ball of string sure so I divert from my course 
knowing that after I see the ball of string, I can get back on my path and go end up where I want to be. Mm-hmm. I won't get lost. Right. So that, to me, is the, the advantage of an outline. I'm not going to get lost even if I divert. With a licensed book, obviously, um, as you say, there are restrictions in that you can't just throw out the outline that you've had approved unless you have a relationship with the editor and the licensor that allows you to say, hey, you know what, I had this idea, can I do this? Maybe they'll say yes, maybe they'll say no. But in general, the object is to stick pretty closely to the outline. Right. Have you you ever had the case that I have with... uh the, 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 my first novel is in editing right now, and I had uh, originally written it as a short uh, script and then a feature script, and then I modified it and turned it into a novel. Um, but when I was doing that, and I thought this is going to be a fairly simple conversion because I've already got the entire story. I just need to fill in some colors and things. And it just took a whole new direction. And I think I, I had an outline that I threw out probably five or six different times in the course of that because I would come across something that would completely change the the way I was going to reach the destination, even though the destination always stayed the same. Have you ever right. just said, all right, I'm going to stop writing outlines and just go for it finishing this story? Yeah. yeah and even in that case, if I'm doing that, I often will make a few notes of... As I'm as I'm working through things, and I think, oh well, I this is a cool idea. I want to make sure I do this. Mm-hmm. Then I'll put that down in a document, and I'll keep referring back to that document because it's, I guess, standing in for an outline. It's not a full outline anymore, but mm-hmm. it's just reminding me of the landmarks that I want to hit on the way. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say that, because that's exactly what I did. I, I didn't know yeah. what else to do. And, and there were other key things that I thought I want to make sure that I remember. I left this thread that I need to sew this up before the right. books end, and this wasn't something I had originally intended. Um, yeah. You mentioned an, an editor. So how do you typically do your book? Do you edit it yourself? Do you work with someone else? Do you and your wife edit for each other? All of the above. <laughs> um, I do a lot of revision on, on my own stuff before anybody sees it and then Marcy sees it and so usually I make at least one editorial pass on it mm-hmm. and then it goes to my agent or if it's a, a licensed project he doesn't usually read it before it goes to the editor but if it's a, an original project we go to my agent except I don't have an agent anymore but oh. when I had an agent that's what would happen um, we broke up uh, but that's that's a different story. It happens. Are you yeah. are you looking for someone new? Or are you going to go it on your own? Yeah, I'm. I'm not very actively looking, no. um, but I've got a book out now with an agent who I've known for a long time, but I've never worked with, and he's looking it over, and and we may or may not come to an understanding. Mm-hmm. If we don't, then I'll go elsewhere. Sure. Yeah, because I mean, obviously, you're going to keep pushing the book, whether it works out with one person or not. Right, right. Yeah. But the the point is, typically, when I'm, when I'm writing a tie-in book, I was hired by an editor, so that editor is going to have his own or her own um, feedback and mm-hmm. uh, notes and whatever. And if I'm writing a book on spec, then whatever publisher is going to 
pick it up, we'll have their own editor. So sure. there's always going to be another editor other than me and Marcy who's going to be mm-hmm. have have his or her hands on it. And I want that. Yeah, I want that because that person will see things that I didn't see and think of things that I didn't think of. Exactly. Well, plus I think, you know, you guys get used to each other's writing styles so much that there's probably things that just slip by because you're so comfortable with each other and to get some completely fresh, clean opinion that yep. has no basis point is very healthy. Yep. And another pair of eyes is always, always a good thing. Are you getting uh, pretty good at taking criticism these days when it comes to something that you maybe want to really hold your ground on and the editor's like, no, this just doesn't work? Yeah, um, I'm used to it. I'm willing to fight for what I feel is important. And if I'm, if I feel really strongly about it, especially if it's it's an original project of mine, then I usually get my way. <laughs> Good. If it's a tie-in project, then I have less control over it. Sure. Even then, you know, sometimes there's battles. Yeah. You have to know which ones to to stand your ground on and which ones to to give up on. Is it that you you fight for what you think works in the story or is there is there times when it comes almost like an ego clash because you're like you're kind of attacking my personal space? Yeah, no, I don't I don't have an issue with that. It's if there's something that I think works for the story or for the character. Um as an example, and I, I won't mention any names, but um, Marcy and I wrote a tie-in book together, and our editor was fine, but the licensor was had never had a novel or worked on a novel or possibly read a novel, and had some strange ideas about the characters that didn't mesh with our ideas and had some strange ideas about just word usage and didn't seem to understand license fiction very well and we had some uh, some rough times on that one let's just say it can be difficult the first time that you go through an experience like that. It, it sounds really exciting. Yes, we should do this, but without having the experience or understanding of it, like the first time I work with a director on a film as the composer, if they've never worked with a composer before, it can be uh, it can be a difficult thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and you're not necessarily working with the actual content creator, like not the original person that came up with the series, just whoever's in charge of that responsibility. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Okay. In this case, I was a it was a game property, and mm-hmm. we were working with the, some of the creators of the game, so they were they were some developers mm-hmm. on on like TV show books. Usually, it's a a person in a licensing department somewhere who has no direct bearing on the show, mm-hmm. but not always. And I I wrote a couple of novels based on the NBC series Las Vegas mm-hmm. and on the second one I worked directly with the show creator Gary Scott Thompson mm. because he had a particular idea in mind he wanted the book to be set between two seasons um, at the end of one season 
the Montecito Hotel, based on the Mandalay Bay, but it was it was called the Montecito. And mm-hmm. at the end of the season, they blew the hotel up. Huh. At the beginning of the next season, they had a brand new hotel built. You live in Las Vegas, you know that doesn't happen in three months. No. Or, or <laughs> even six months, which on the on the show they said it was a period of six months had passed. Yeah, that's compo- incredibly unrealistic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but he wanted the novel to tell the stories of what the characters were doing in that six-month interim. Mm. And so we hashed out their stories individually one by one. This character's going to do this, this character's going to do that, this character's going to do that. And then I wrote it, and then on the next season of the show, occasionally they would refer to things that they had done during that interim period. Oh. So, so my novel kind of became canon, became part of the the overall fabric of the of the TV series, which was cool. That's that's very cool. Did he know where he wanted them to be at the start of the season, or was that something you guys created together? At the at the start of the season, they all had to be back ready to go back to work or going back to work. So, okay. so I just had to get them to that point. Mm-hmm. So when you would watch the following season, was it kind of neat to hear some reference to your creation? Absolutely. I bet. Yeah. That almost never happened in high writing, so it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. What was, uh, what was the first tie-in that you did, and, and how did that come about? My first novel was a tie-in. It was when I was working in the comic book business for Wildstorm Productions, and I had written some comics with these characters called Gen 13, this teen superhero team. And a friend of mine, uh, author Christopher Golden, had also written some Gen 13 comics. And we made an animated feature film um, of Gen 13. Directed by Kevin Altieri, who'd done a lot of Batman the Animated Series stuff and other other TV animation. Um, So I made this film, and we sold it to Disney, and sold for domestic uh, distribution. We sold international distribution to Paramount. And Ace Books, which is a division of Penguin, decided they wanted to do novels based on this property because there was a movie coming out from Disney. Mm-hmm. So we did the deal with Ace, and Ace asked Chris Golden to write the first book. He'd done some X-Men novels and some other comic book tie-in stuff. Um, but he was busy, and he and I were pals and had been kind of looking for a project to do together, so he asked me if I would write it with him. And I said yes. So because he was busy, I did about 75% of the writing, and he did about 25%. And went back and forth. This was this was in caveman days. So we were mailing floppy disks to each other. <laughs> I remember those. Yeah. As we as we did a couple of chapters, we sent the floppy disk from San Diego to Boston, where he was. And, back to San Diego. Um, so that was my first novel. And then Disney put the movie on the shelf and never released it. So, really? 
so there you go. Wow. They just took a million dollars and flushed it down the toilet. Yeah, no wonder it costs like $180 to get into the park. <laughs> yeah, and, and But aside from that decision, I mean, that's a, that's a huge first at bat, right? I mean, you're selling your first project to Disney. You haven't done anything yet. That's pretty amazing. How did how did Disney how did you connect with Disney? I don't even know. I wasn't the one who handled that part of it, mm-hmm. but I was of at that point I was vice president of marketing for the company. And the company's president knew everybody everywhere and is a a good businessman. He's he's currently the president of Marvel Comics. Oh wow. And so he made it happen somehow. Mm-hmm. And we were, the owner of the company was was Jim Lee, who's a very famous comic artist um, who had left Marvel Comics to become one of the first founders of Image Comics. And um, so we were, a, we were a pretty powerhouse company in that time. And we... We got an animated series on the air on CBS called Wildcats, and we got this Disney deal for our first animated feature. That's fantastic. And then DC Comics bought the company, and Jim became publisher, co-publisher at DC, which is where he still is. Wow. You definitely had some, some of the right connections, for sure. But without the quality of the work, it wouldn't have gotten to that point. So you really just kind of just jumped into to making the right things at the right time. Yeah, yeah. And then is that what led to some of your other series, like uh, the CSI stuff? And then uh, I think you did some, you did a Buffy one too, didn't you? Yeah, I did a lot of Buffy stuff. And yes, that led directly because because Chris and our friend Nancy Holder had written the first Buffy novel when Buffy was pretty new on the air, and um, he introduced me to his Buffy editor. And she had me do a book that was adapting three Buffy episodes that were focused on the character Xander. Mm-hmm. And I did that. She was okay with it. And then the the Angel spinoff came out. And I was kind of slow on the on the Buffy bandwagon. I hadn't been watching from the beginning. But now that I was involved, I was watching and catching up. Mm-hmm. And I started watching Angel from the beginning and um, pitched her an Angel novel and she bought it and then I ended up writing 11 Angel novels Wow! and a bunch of Angel comics and co-wrote the Buffy, the second Buffy Watcher's Guide, which is a non-fiction, kind of an overview of the series with interviews with everybody and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, episode guides and all that. The second one of those and we did the first one for Angel. What season of Buffy were they in when you started working on the novel? Probably the third. Okay. Second or third. So it was reasonably established by that time. Yeah. 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 Uh, there is a bit of a, a Buffy Vegas tie-in uh, on, on the minimal side. Allison Hannigan, who was one of the actresses on that show, mm-hmm. uh, was hosting uh, the Fool Us show with Penn and Teller. That they were doing up here, so she would, uh, you know, she would bring out the magician that was going to to try and fool them, and most of the time they ended up involving her in whatever the illusion was. But she's very oh, talented, cool. you know. She was so, uh, oh, yeah. you know, 
kind of uh, shy on the show a little bit. You know, one of those sort of nerdy characters that really doesn't yeah. do well with people. Uh, but boy, you know, as, as just a, a person in her job, she was a fantastic host, very ex- exuberant. and She's terrific. Yeah, she is. And actually, I, d- I didn't mention it, but the Gen 13 novel that Chris and I wrote together mm-hmm. um, is also set in Las Vegas. Oh, is that right? We decided that Las Vegas was a portal to hell. <laughs> and and the Gen 13 kids had to go and um, deal with the consequences of that. Wow, I like that. Yeah, I, I'm not going to say you're wrong. Yeah. We made up um, a, a horror-themed hotel. It was most horror writers at heart. And so we made up this horror-themed hotel in Las Vegas that's where most of the action takes place. And it surprises me that they haven't, they haven't built one yet. Well, th- that's it. I mean, I've said to several people, I don't understand why we don't have a horror-themed hotel. It, I think it would yeah. be a little expensive, but you could certainly do a lot with some very simple, you know, you just put some speakers in the hallways with random crying and, you know. Yeah. It could be done so easily, and I, I really think it would be a huge hit. I do, too. Yeah. I, I wish I knew some hotel developers that that could throw up a hotel in six months. Exactly. <laughs> That's all you need. Yeah, yeah. A couple of bucks in six months and you got a hotel. Right, right. Now, you know, I, I know a lot of authors and a lot of them I see posting uh, their word goals. Like, I want to write 4,000 words today or I want to get to, you know, the finish this chapter today. Do you set yourself uh, any kind of expectation or pressure to, to reach or do you just go in, until you don't feel like writing? Yeah, I I don't do that anymore. I guess I did when I was younger, but um, I used to write faster than I do now. You know, five, six, seven thousand words a day was not not uncommon. Um, although my goal was usually five thousand, not five. Um, <laughs> but these days, I just, these days I don't set a goal. I just Right, I just filled the time, mm-hmm. and when when the time's up, which is usually when it's you know time to go pick the kids up from school or time to start dinner or whatever, sure. um, yeah. then then I'm done for the day. But. So it's it's really almost like a day job, right? You have a schedule. You start at this time. You break for lunch, have tea, whatever you're going to do, and then of course you have the life stuff that gets in the way. So then you got to stop and and do those things. Yep. Yeah. I, uh, I I find that I try to do that, and I, I fairly well stick to it, but then I come back after dinner, and I start, I'm just going to finish this one thing up, and then the yeah. next thing I know, the sun's coming up, and I think, oh, I should probably get a couple hours sleep. Yeah, I can't, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> but you've been there, you you know. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really like that. I, I think that um, if you can, if you can, sort of write on command that way if you can get in the zone and just get back into the story I find if I've had to go away from a story for a little while and I come back to it it's really hard to pick up that momentum is oh, that yeah. something do you, so you experience that too? Absolutely yeah What do you do? Um button chair hands on keys mm-hmm. the only the only thing that works for me Do you kind of read back the last few pages to kind of get back in the, on that road? Yeah, read it back, go back and edit the last chapter or whatever. Um, 
But yeah, it's a constant issue. Mm-hmm. And it's, I've been away from it for too long. And it's hard, but but it has to be done, so I do it. Yeah, that's the, it's the only way it's going to get done is if you push through it. Yeah. And you can always edit it later if, if you find that, that that chain didn't really link up right. You know, that's always something right. you can fix in editing. Yeah. Um, do you edit as you go, or do you just kind of let it pour out because you know you're going to look at it later? I like to go back and at least look over the last couple of pages before I start on on today's work but I don't always and if I'm if I'm in a groove and it's just coming out fast then I just leave it for later mm-hmm. so I, I don't have a a rigorous answer either way yeah. kind of I think some of the best advice I was given was actually by by Tammy she said uh, when I wrote the first draft of the this the, it was just going to be a 10 minute screenplay um, I, I did it very bare bones and she said just write whatever you want it to be and then as the producer I'll figure out what we can and can't do in, in making this a movie but throw everything you want in it because if you don't it's not going to be there versus you know and then I can compromise this or that do you ever think in terms of any any kind of limitations when you write or do you just let your imagination go and you just put it on paper the limitations are entirely self self established. It's like if I'm writing a mystery, then I'm my limitation is that I'm not going to put supernatural elements into it, for instance. Or if I'm if I'm writing a western, then I'm, there's no cell phones or wristwatches. But but limitations in terms of where the story can or can't go, or what kind of special effects I can get away with. There's there's none of that because I can. If it's my story, I can do what I want with it. But I, but I have already set those limits ahead of time that I'm going to set. I have this odd way of approaching a story, I guess, or a book especially, where I visualize a long hallway with all these open doors on either side of it maybe light coming through from windows and each decision I make about the, what the book is going to be closes a door mm. so I'll walk down the hallway and okay this is not science fiction close that door it's not a romance close that door it's not uh, Arthurian close that door main character is a woman okay close the man door she's got blue eyes and um, one leg close to those doors. So so as I'm making my decisions about the story that I'm going to tell, I'm shutting off all the stories I'm not telling. That's interesting. And eventually my story becomes clear because the doors that remain open are the ones that I'm going to writing about that makes a lot of sense i've never heard it done that way before but i i really like that idea because it just prevents you from even accidentally going down a path because you've really blocked that out of your mind yeah that's that visualization that i came up with a long time ago and it works for me but i don't know if it would work for anybody else sure yeah yeah no that's that's a cool strategy though i like that 
I wanted to ask you too. Uh, you had said that you're you're shopping for an agent, and even though you're not being aggressive about it right at the moment, what what is the process of that for you? What do you look for? What do you see that says no? I don't want to work with this person. It's a lot like getting married or having a girlfriend um, or boyfriend. It's um, do your personalities mesh? Do you get along? But then, with the additional um, complications of you're in business together, the agent wants you to make money because the more money you make, the more money the agent makes. So it's in your agent's best interest to get you the best possible deal and to to always raise the stakes, negotiate up with the with the publisher, and that's. That's in your interest, that's in the agent's interest. Sure. With my last agent, he tended to be only interested in trying to sell to the top, well, they used to be the top 10 publishers, now it's like the top five, because there's there's only five big houses anymore, because of consolidation. And I'm what used to be called a mid-list writer, these days, the, the conventional wisdom is that the mid-list is gone. Um, the mass market paperbacks are gone. Mm-hmm. And they've been replaced largely by e-books. Um, so the, the big five publishers are primarily interested in hardcover originals that they can sell a lot of copies of. Yeah. And my, my sales are not New York Times best-selling kind of numbers and that's what they're looking for so uh, probably no longer a, a big five publisher well speaking as someone who who is a big fan of your work i i don't see why not i mean if it's if it's a marketing thing if it's a, a you know you're just not connecting with the right person making the decision i don't know but i've read a lot of books in my life and and your stuff is stuff that keeps me it keeps me wanting to turn the page. And that's not something I can say about a lot of other authors I've read. I mean, they might have interesting stories or, or tell them decently well, but there's very few authors that I've just, you know, if if I have the chance and the time to read a book, I'm just going to pick one of your books versus many others I could read. Oh, and I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and that's what I try to do. I try to write the best book I can every time out whether it's my own or or a tie-in or whatever Mm -hmm. and so I don't know what what it is that has put my sales where they are Um, I don't know if it's that I don't have the right personality I don't know if it's that I haven't been marketed correctly or marketed myself correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever it is, I'm okay with it. That's good. I want to write books and tell stories and get them published so people can read them. Mm-hmm. But if I don't make a million dollars on each book, you know, that's all right. Um, so I need an agent who is willing to look to smaller presses, willing to work within 
the, the realities of my sales history mm-hmm. and um, and not one who is just solely focused on those those big five houses because sure. big five houses for me can't move any more books than a smaller publisher can and I'd rather work with a smaller publisher that that I'm more comfortable with so well it, it'll be interesting to see because if it really is a marketing issue then uh, maybe those those publishers will be better at marketing you than somebody who who really sees a, a limitation or doesn't really see the full potential uh, it, but the art is the same and at the end of the day that's why we do it is because we love creating things and we hope that people will enjoy what we've created yeah or you could you could be you know breaking your neck trying to get a deal with RCA or I don't know what record companies there are anymore, but if there are still record companies, you could be breaking <laughs> your neck trying to get a deal with them. Yeah. And, and instead, you're doing what you love, and you're putting out great product, and you're making good music that that you love and that people enjoy. Yeah, thank you. It's, it is that, that fine line between, yes, I would like to reach a bigger market. I would like to touch everyone in the world with what I create, but at the same point, uh, I could kill myself marketing it, or I can enjoy writing it. Yeah, you know. Uh, so I, I definitely wish you good luck with with uh, your next agent. I hope that they they find that right gap because I definitely think there is a spot for you. It's just a matter of connecting with whichever one it is. And do you think that part of this this whole thing too is because we're in a time now where, same with the music industry, it's so accessible for anyone to publish a book now that we're flooded with so much yes. that it's hard to, to say, hey, I've got something that you should check out above the just the general shelf noise. Yep. That's very much a reality these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, anyone can, can self-publish a book and get it on the, the digital shelves. Mm-hmm. And... I forget the last number that I saw, but there was just a phenomenal number of books published last year. Yeah. And, and every year recently, it's just been through the roof. So it is hard to to be seen through all that. And then on top of that, you've got uh, the uh, the difference in Kindle pricing versus regular pricing. So a lot of yeah. authors are Kindle only. And they'll do books for 99 cents. They'll do books for free for a promotion. You know, if somebody can get a book for free and read it versus paying, you know, five or six dollars for a book, most people are going to go for the free one. Yep. That is also true. And that's a, it's a strategy that works for a lot of people. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's make, tough. Make the first one perma-free, and if you have a series, then, then it's, it's just like the drug dealers when I was a kid. First taste is free. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Um, so another strategy that I, I've heard, which I find interesting, is that uh, when it comes to the younger generations of readers, they usually don't get into books that are too long. You know, you kind of want to keep your word count under, you know, say, 70, 80,000 or, or below, and then they'll give you a chance. And if they've read a bunch of your books and you write a long one, then, they'll, uh, then they're more likely to give it a chance. But do you think that that holds true in your experience, that people just don't want to read long adventures? Um, 
I don't know how true that is. I, I think that there certainly is that element, but at the same time, um, Harry Potter. Mm. You know, massive books. Sure. And kids were snapping them up like crazy, and still are. But there, there might be an age where that stops being appealing. Mm-hmm. Um, like young adults or, or older teens who are busy with maybe with school and relationships and looking for their first job and, and that kind of thing. Um, I don't even know if they're still millennials. Maybe they're the, the younger siblings of the millennials, or maybe they're the kids of the millennials at this point. But mm-hmm. but I can I can definitely see where a longer book would be less appealing to them. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, I if if the story is good, there's that part of me that wants to know how it ends. But I I would rather enjoy the journey. Yeah, I I like long books. And yeah, so I tend to write long books. But I like to immerse myself in that world and stay there for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I if I think the world is interesting. Yeah, I, I remember the uh, the what two plus decades it spanned to read Stephen King's Dark Tower series, and mm-hmm. uh, you know it was one of those things where you never forgot about those people. And every once in a while, some cliffhanger or something would pop into your head, and you couldn't wait for the next book, even if it was ten years between. Uh, and and those some of those books were you know eight nine hundred pages, but this but the stories carried for the most part so well that you didn't care. It was it was like you said you know it was wanting to immerse yourself in it. And I love that. I hope that storytelling doesn't become predicated on that. I, I would hate to think that everything in the future will be a short story. Well, there is the theory that we're losing our attention span, mm-hmm. our devices and checking our phones every 10 minutes and that kind of thing that attention spans are just getting shorter and shorter and like you I hope that that is a temporary thing or a a minority of the population Mm -hmm. because I think reading is important and books are important and stories tell us other ways we can live other ways we can see things and and view the world around us and um, stories let us try on lives that are not like our own yes I think we need that as a as a culture well it allows you to imagine yourself in the, in the footsteps of somebody that you aren't you know carrying yeah. through whatever situation or adventure or you know uh, challenge and yeah. uh, I, I think the other thing is too is that with all of this technology, I'm afraid that we're losing our imaginations. There is definitely an aspect of that. Because it's all presented for us instead of letting us see it for ourselves. Right. Uh, I remember as a kid playing games like Zork, uh, you know, where, where it was all word-driven adventures. There were no graphics whatsoever. And they would give you a brief description of what room you were in or what area you were in and what directions you could go and what objects were in the room. And you had to solve whatever puzzle. And it was purely minimal description. But in your head, you're creating these, you know, vast jungles and huge cavernous systems. And uh, 
I just I just don't see as many opportunities for that anymore because with everything being so heavily video driven, you're not giving that chance. Yeah, and that's a a uh, an issue that I face with our own kids. Mm-hmm. They're nine and fourteen, and and their faces are looking into a screen for a big part of the day. Right. And then I say, "Hey, read read a book." <laughs> Do they do they not have a natural interest in reading, being the the child of a writer? Not to the point that I would expect them to. Not not to the point that the, the older kids were. Yeah. Um, but then the older kids weren't raised with screens from the time they were they were infants. Sure. And the younger kids have always had them. So it's it's definitely a concern going forward for not just my family, but all families. Right, yeah, and, and now that the technology just goes everywhere with you, I mean, it was bad enough when home computers yeah. became a thing, and, and you could see that trend starting, but now that yeah. the technology's in your hand, literally everywhere you go, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, how many kids these days can do math in their head? Well, I never could, so oh. <laughs> I can't say. <laughs> well, then that was unfair but I guess, of me. I understand your point, nonetheless. <laughs> But, you know, I used to go on road trips with my parents, for instance, and I would have, like, four books that I would take with me because I'm going to be gone for a few days. Mm-hmm. And they might bring a book on a on a five-day trip, and they might look at it a few times, but they're much more likely to look at the screen, and even out the window. Did, did you only read novels, or did you ever bring, like, a puzzle book? Oh, um, mostly novels, but occasionally puzzle stuff and and the kind of car games like car bingo that um, that force you to look out the windows and mm-hmm. see the surroundings that you're going yeah. that you're going through. Yeah, I think that's a great point because I think in general, especially now, given what we've been talking about. I think that we tend to miss so much of what's around us because we're too busy focusing on everything but the world around us. Yes. It's a shame. Yeah. yeah. It's a shame. Well, before we go, Jeff, and, and uh, really, uh, I've really enjoyed our talk, and I'm so glad that you came on the show. Um, okay. for, for some of these newer writers that are, are starting out and they're trying to find their, their niche and trying to figure out who they are as writers – what would you say to them to, to kind of maybe start building a foundation of, of confidence? Read, first of all. Um, I know a couple of writers who don't read, and, or who don't read fiction anyway, and are still good fiction writers, but that's incredibly rare, and I don't understand how they do it. Um, so my, my first advice would be to read widely. Um, fiction, nonfiction, magazines, newspapers, whatever you can get your hands on. Because the more you know and the more you're exposed to the world, the more you will be able to write things that are interesting to people other than yourself. Mm. And that is important. Um, And write. I think writing is a muscle like any other. And if you exercise it regularly, 
it will be there for you when you need it. So true. And if you don't exercise it, it's not going to be there. Um, so if you're not writing regularly, you're you're only hurting yourself. Yeah. The, the people who don't read the books that you didn't write will not be damaged by not having read them because you never wrote them. Ooh, that should be on my refrigerator. I like that. That should be that should be something that I remind myself of daily. I like that, and, and you know, and it's okay if you're writing things just for exercise or writing things that you're yeah. not going to release. Just write, you know, let it out, right. build that muscle, work that, work that muscle. So, no matter what you're writing, that's good stuff. Uh, now that you were saying that, though, I did come up with one additional question. I, I'm very curious to get your thoughts on save the cat. Save the Sorry. Cat. Are you familiar with that? No. It's a, it's a book that basically tells you the formula for writing. Like on, on what page number this should start happening and on, on what page number that should, you know, should end. Uh, it, it's basically like a blueprint for the formula of telling a story. Um, I am not familiar with it. I, you know... Maybe it works. So it works for for anyone um, to get through their first book or their first story or whatever. Um, then that's great. I've got plenty of writing books here that I sometimes refer to, even though I have written seventy some novels of my own and some nonfiction and stories and comics and whatever else. I still refer to these books, so I don't have anything against that idea in principle I, I wouldn't want every book to be written to that formula right but at the same time I have read entertaining books that were written to a formula mm-hmm. um, when this is going back a ways but Robin Cook's first novel was Coma which then became a movie mm-hmm. it was a huge bestseller and it was a riveting um, story, really well told, compelling, the kind of book you don't put down. Um, and he wrote it by basically dissecting a couple of years worth of best-selling thrillers and figuring out just those things. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at page X, the story turns this way, and at page Y, that revelation was made this way. Hmm. He did that, and he wrote a novel, and it was a terrific novel. And it, it launched his career, which is still, as far as I know, going strong. That's great. And and for the one-off, or for your first couple, I, I would say that's probably okay. But if, if I knew that every Jeff Marriott book that I read, on page 40, I was going to meet the character that was going to be the hero. Uh, yeah, you know, to, to the, yeah, it would just get so stale that there would be no point in doing it. You know, but you're right. I think as a, as a as a practice tool, as a learning uh, tool, I think it's great. But I, I think it just is one of those things that people can depend on as a crutch too much. Oh yeah. And and they, they that becomes their comfort zone, and that's what they stay in. And you've got to branch out. I think a story should be fluid. Wherever the story goes, however long it needs to be to tell that story properly, uh, should be the focus more so than you know these these pivot points. Oh, and you, you see the same thing with screenwriters who rely on 
the hero's journey mm-hmm. too much and and you know when that old character comes out at the beginning that he's going to be the wise guy that sends the character off on his quest and, you, know, you know where those t- twists and turns are going to come from and if you can telegraph them the first ten minutes of the movie then it loses some interest but yeah. at the same time some really good screenplays have been written with that formula so mm-hmm. it's, it's partly how you deal with the the underlying structure and the the formulaic aspects and what you do with it um, so you can you can tell a good story that way but you probably wouldn't want to do it every time yeah yeah I agree with that well Jeff it's been a great time I thank you so much for coming on the show uh, can't wait thank to see having me oh absolutely uh, can't wait to see what you do next and uh, I, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that you find a, a good uh, agent this time well thank you you bet take care and come and see us again okay thanks Scott you bet appreciate it bye bye take care yeah there's there's so many things I love about Jeff and and besides his writing he's just an incredibly knowledgeable and articulate guy really has had some pretty amazing experiences I mean sure there's an element of luck of just you know knowing the right people in the beginning that happened to lead you to some really cool things but if the quality of the work wasn't there it doesn't matter who you know because it's only going to go so far and certainly Disney's not going to be buying it I mean you, you have to have the talent to back up but the the contacts obviously are important too so that you get the opportunity so anyway I hope you guys enjoyed the show. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. Please go ahead and uh, leave some feedback or do a rating of the show on whatever uh, source that you're getting it from. Take care, guys, and have a great week. Mm-hmm.